You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brother, we are thankful for your word that you have revealed yourself to us, and we are even thankful for difficult texts like these. We pray that you might give us understanding and clarity. That even in troubling texts like these of judgment and of death, that we might be assured and comforted all the more of your love for us and of your movement toward us in Christ. We pray that we would behold him now. We pray that you would do these things for Christ's sake and, and, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, I, I heard a, a pastor in, in London a couple of weeks ago, addressed his church as, a, as a rumors and Zoomers. So good evening, rumors and Zoomers. Um, maybe that won't be a regular thing. Uh, but my name is Nathan. Uh, it's good to see you all this evening. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to after the service. Uh, and we are nine days away from a presidential election. Uh, thankfully, whatever, whatever will happen, we'll Lord willing be over then. We, we can't see into the future and know what the outcome will be a week and a half from now, or certainly what the outcome of our country and the world will be, depending on that outcome. But you've all heard of the butterfly effect, yes? 
uh, that like because some butterfly might flap its wings in Peru, that then this starts, this one tiny action then has a, like a domino cause and effect uh, event changing course of action that could then, if, if this butterfly flaps its wings in such a way in Peru that it might actually change your life in some way. Actions, even the smallest ones, have consequences, sometimes in a butterfly's wings. Sometimes actions have much bigger consequences. Outcomes change outcomes, which change outcomes. One of the most influential human beings in the history of the world was a guy maybe you have perhaps never heard of, a guy named Gavrilo Princip. He's a Serbian guy who in April of 1914 was in his native city of Sarajevo, and the heir of the throne of the imperial and ruling Austro-Hungarian empire was in town. This guy named the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and uh, this uh, Princip decides that he is in a move of like patriotic fervor against the ruling emperor. In a day of confusion and coincidences and chaos, Princip decides to shoot and assassinate this archduke, which then sets off one chain event after another, one country declaring war on another, and we have got World War I. Princip may or may not have attempted this assassination had he known what was to follow. Had he known that this one pull of the trigger would cause a four-year war, would cause over 40 million casualties, military and civilian, almost 20 million deaths based on his one decision that day. But it did. It happened. Actions have consequences, good and bad. And as we've seen in Acts so far, God is shaping a connected, communal people. He is not merely saving isolated individuals on which decisions or actions bear no uh, meaning on one another. So as I've heard Jen Wilkins say, there is no such thing as a non-communal obedience. And there is no such thing as a non-communal sin, meaning obedience and sin has effects, have, has consequences on the community. We are a connected and communal group of creatures. And in Acts 4 and 5, we are going to see just that. Uh, let's just jump right in tonight and think through this text in, in two sections, conveniently separated by our chapter headings in chapter 4 and then the events of chapter 5. So we're going to think through these two sections and the giving of self and then of the taking for self. So where are we here? We're going to pick up in verse 32 where you heard Caleb start reading, but where are we in the midst of this story? If you're new with us uh, tonight, we've been working through these first four and a half chapters. We've seen the resurrected Jesus ascend to the right hand of God the Father, assuring uh, his people of his kingdom and of their ultimate salvation. But he doesn't leave them to fend for themselves. He sends his spirit to dwell in and amongst them. We thought about the wind and the fire in Acts chapter 2, reminding us of God's presence dwelling with his people throughout the Old Testament, most specifically in the tabernacle and in the temple. God's people are now, in the book of Acts, God's mobile places of his divine presence on earth. And throughout the power and the person and the presence of Jesus, his people then begin performing signs and wonders speaking in languages they can't speak, and healing people who can't walk to all confirm the power of God in and through them. 
Peter preaches and speaks with power, confronting the opponents of Jesus, and now 5,000 people, actually 5,000 men, so likely at least double that number, including women and children, a sizable population of people in Jerusalem have now gathered and assembled as the first church. In fact, that's what the word church means, gathering or assembly. And what God is doing in and through his people, not just preaching and healing toward the out there, but also now transforming the hearts and minds of the people in here. So we read in verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then in verse 34 and 35, many are even selling their houses, their land, and they are laying the money and the proceeds down at the apostles' feet. So if you might remember from last week, where we considered how crazy it was that for all of Israel's history up until this point, if you wanted to know God, you came to the intermediary uh, priests or prophets. But now, in this new covenant of Christ, you did not need a priestly intermediary on earth. That is, you weren't part of the new covenant people unless you already knew and experienced God through a great high priest. Not through a human intermediary, but through Jesus himself. Well, the the same kind of thing is happening here. Throughout Israel's history, if you wanted to worship God with your things, you entrusted those things, that money, to the temple's leadership. With all sorts of tithes and offerings and sacrifices, you went around the corner to a different place over there, to the place of God's presence. But now, in the book of Acts, something drastic is happening. Something, a dramatic shift has happened. Forget all of that around the corner over there. These new Christians are now bringing all their stuff, all their possessions, their offerings, not to the temple, but to the apostles, to the church. Used to, you'd bring some gold coins or some gold earrings or something, and then the temple leadership would melt that down and then make that stuff now something practically useful something really special for the worship of God. In fact, in the Old Testament temple worship, the opposite of holy wasn't unholy. The opposite of holy is common. Holy in its proper usage really means something that is set apart, something that is now set apart and put to a special use for the worship of God by a select few priests and Levites who would ritually worship on behalf of the people. But now, all of those common things, those common offerings of generosity are now not being set apart for a more holy use. They are staying common and then are used for holy usages. There is a a leveling in which all of the new covenant people of God use their money and their stuff, not so that others might worship for them, But in worship to God, they use their money and their stuff to generously care for one another. To reiterate what Clint said three weeks ago, there there is no coercion here. This isn't the first communist or even socialist economy in which the leadership make economic demands of the people to ensure this kind of leveling leveling or, or flattening. The people are voluntarily generous 
not considering their things as mine, but considering their things as ours. And even if you wanted to make some sort of a communistic or socialistic argument from this text, it would not be terribly difficult to show historically that without the Spirit of God doing all of this stuff, working through the leaders and the community, those economies will either crumble or often just bog down in terribly inefficient bureaucracy. I'm not saying that those kinds of economies can't ever work. Perhaps somebody will figure that out, but to apply what ought to be true of the church to then governments and economic systems is likely overly optimistic. It is the Spirit of God that is doing all of this work in and amongst His people. But back to how these people viewed themselves and their stuff. To, To use Randy Alcorn's language that we so often use around here, it sure appears that this early church was viewing themselves as God's third-party money managers. That since there is nothing on this earth that God does not actually own, they viewed themselves not as owners of land and of houses, not as owners of TVs and cars and iPhones and swimming pools, but as stewards, as caretakers of houses and land and TVs, and cars, and iPhones, and swimming pools. We see this guy Joseph, also called Barnabas. Barnabas is going to very shortly become a major character in the story of Acts. He's from the island of Cyprus, and he sells a piece of land that he has there on that island, and he gives all of that money to the apostles, along with others who sold land and houses. The overall good the overall flourishing of the people was more important to Barnabas than his own comfort and his security. Now, this doesn't mean prescriptively that all Christians should now sell everything that they own and give it to their pastors. You all need to go sell everything and give it to us and just entrust us to take care of those who are in need. No, this is happening here in this, these first few days, but Throughout the rest of the New Testament, Paul is going to address quite a few, lots of wealthy homeowners in his letters. He's commending them in their godliness and in their using of their homes for hospitality, for gathering people. So it's not necessarily prescriptive here for us, but I think what is helpful and what is prescriptive for us is that if there is a need in this body and I can relieve it with my stuff, then your need is more important than my stuff. I think I've shared with you of a friend of ours from seminary when we were living in Louisville who used to, whenever he would buy something, he would intentionally right away just scratch it or dent it. (laughs) Like buy a new car, just get a hammer and whack the side of it. Why would he do this? Well, he wanted to, on the very first day, very intentionally remind himself that this Possession, whatever it is, is not mine and it is not ultimate. Whatever this thing is will not provide for me security. And at a moment's notice, I want to be ready to give this thing away. Clint has already bragged on you uh, enough from three weeks ago to emphasize how overwhelmingly thankful we are for that so much of this is already happening. Not that you all are like denting and scratching your things 
but that you are considering your things and your money to be, that of, for, to be used for the community, for those who are in need, to those who need these things, living in selfless generosity, both in your general giving to the expenses and the ministry of our church, like in shaky economic times like this, it is unbelievable. We are, we are overwhelmingly just blown away at the state of our budget right now, three years into our fiscal year. It's unreal how generous you all are with your money. Thank you. Praise God for that. But also in just the personal care of all of these stories that we are hearing in your care for one another. Clint's already shared so many of those, and even just in the past three weeks, more and more and more stories that we are hearing of your care for one another. Keep it up. This is the work of the Spirit amongst us. Praise God for that. So, so far in Acts, everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when you're living out a dream. Now, sure, like, it is not a total dream. It is not this total dream world that the early church is living in in the first four chapters of Acts. There is certainly opposition to the kingdom of Christ. Peter and John have already been arrested, and there is more of that coming. But it sure seems like God has finally finally brought about in this new covenant. He has finally brought about through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He has finally brought about through the giving and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is finally God has brought about and has created a people, a perfect people in which he can now live in communion and in love. They will perfectly proclaim his excellencies through boldness and in their care and generosity for one another. They will perfectly proclaim his character to the world around them, and the kingdom will be built. Chapter 5. We turn the page. After considering the giving of self, now let's consider the taking for self. The church is not perfect. We read of Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe in a kid's Sunday school, you might have heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira taught, or Sapphira taught as like a morality tale. Like, God hates lying, kids, so always tell the truth. You don't want to end up like Ananias and Sapphira, do you? You lie, you die. So that's why you always tell the truth. But Acts 5 comes after Acts 4. This is not just a morality tale. The context is so important. The purity of the church as God's new temple is being emphasized here. That said, and we'll come back to all of those themes, that said, Acts 5 can be really troubling when you read it. And I think it can be troubling for primarily, there's lots of reasons, but primarily perhaps two reasons. First, perhaps, and especially if I am new or newish to the Bible, I might read a chapter like this and think, yeah, man, this God of the Bible is just so weird. Out of control, violent, angry. It's like every other page, God seems to be killing someone. And while the reality of God intervening in judgment and of death does happen throughout the scriptures, there's no doubt, 
Ananias and Sapphira here, Nadab and Abihu and Leviticus 10, the sons of Aaron, who then attempt to lead Israel in this like unauthorized tabernacle worship, and however they want, they're struck dead. Remember Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, who reaches out and touches the Ark of the Covenant and is struck dead. Many, many more. And so if cumulatively I put all of these stories together, it makes it feel like God is killing someone every other page. But just like all of the miraculous appearances of God in salvation might feel like they are happening all the time, like, man, I just, if I were living in Old Testament days, and I just happened to see God coming down and acting in miraculous power left and right like every other day, surely I would have greater faith then than I do now. But just in the same way, we're, we have to consider the scope of the Old Testament story that we're talking about thousands and thousands of years here. Most generations of Israel would have never seen some miraculous work of power from God. Most generations would have never seen some severe act of judgment and of wrath. It was a walk of faith for them just as it is for us. But God would intervene sometimes, usually when the purity of his worship was at stake or during some new movement of his people toward the more settled kingdom of God. And that's, those two things are what's happening here. The purity of his worship are at stake, is at stake, and there is a movement, a new movement towards the more settledness of the kingdom of God. And I think that Luke actually wants us to think about it in that way, perhaps comparing this whole scene, in fact, the first four and a half chapters of Acts to the end of Deuteronomy and the early chapters of the book of Joshua. In those chapters and the last chapter of Deuteronomy, like Moses, Jesus departs from his people on a mountain just before they are to begin the conquest of the land. Like Moses, Jesus imparts his spirit to his people as they are to now begin their conquest. The last chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses lays his hands on Joshua and imparts a spirit of wisdom. Then the, the people in both Joshua and in Acts go into this land and they are performing signs and wonders. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of Joshua, things in the, those early chapters begin really, really well. God miraculously gives over a major city to the people, the city of Jericho. Things couldn't be better. The people have renewed their covenants with God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They are living in obedience as an entire kingdom of priests walking before the nations in righteousness and in obedience as witnesses to what he has done in Egypt and at Mount Sinai. Things are going awesome. And then immediately, the very next chapter after Jericho, there is a guy named Achan who steals some of the plunder from Jericho for himself. The plunder of Jericho was explicitly meant to be taken and devoted toward the tabernacle, toward the worship of God. But Achan, he steals a beautiful cloak. He steals 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, and he buries it in his tent. And as a result, at the very same time that Achan is stealing and hiding all of these things, Israel is simultaneously 
losing a battle against a little tiny neighboring city. And the judgment of God has come upon the nation. Achan's sin is found out, and he and even members of his family are put to death. So I think the alarm bells of Joshua 6 and 7 ought to be ringing loudly in our ears as we read Acts 5. That Jerusalem, this new major city, this new Jericho, is being miraculously delivered in the name of God, is powerfully going out. There is opposition still, but God is making a righteous and just people before the nations. There is selfishness still within the people, and so God is directly and severely showing how serious covenanting with him actually is. Covenanting with the living God is not just about saving people from their present and future problems. Covenanting with the living God is about God dwelling in and amongst his people now and forever, and that holiness, that purity actually matters. Israel was confronted with the seriousness of sin and holiness in Joshua 6 and 7, and the church is likewise confronted here. In verse 11, we read, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things after the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, this kind of fear is not a terror, not constantly cowering from lightning bolts from heaven or something. But just as Israel was entering the land, the church now has a renewed sobriety that their lives and their conduct amongst themselves and before the nations actually matter. Now, more on that in a minute, but there's a second reason that I think this text can be troubling. You might read the Old Testament and certainly be troubled by all the severity and all the death, all the wrath and the anger, but, but then you might approach how you read the New Testament. You might approach how you understand and put, the, put together the whole reading of the Bible and that there is a major shift at the coming of Christ, that while the God of the Old Testament, sure, he was all about wrath and judgment, Jesus is now about love and mercy. So whether it's just that God matured as he uh, grew alongside the people or that the people matured in their understanding of God or that Jesus is almost and essentially a different God than the God of the Old Testament that crowds out all that bad stuff from previous generations. Whatever lens you might use to color such discontinuity in God's character and actions from the Old Testament to the New, none of that will actually hold up when you read the New Testament. Whether it's Jesus' own teachings, warning after warning after warning of destruction that is far worse than anything in the Old Testament, or descriptions of God in the New Testament as he is, not as he was, like back in the, in the past when he was all angry and wrathful or something, but as Hebrews 12 talks about, for our God is a consuming fire, or that his word and his character do not change. If his character changes, then we do not have any reason to hope or to trust that he will not also change in the future, this time perhaps for the bad again. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, always trustworthy, always right, always good. And his word, Jesus says in John 10, cannot be broken. It is not an unbreakable word in which this part was untrustworthy, but now this part might be. 
And in fact, that's one benefit of recognizing and meditating on the Achan similarities of Joshua 6 and 7 to Acts 5 to Ananias and Sapphira. That yes, certainly something new has happened in the coming of Christ and his forming a new people and giving them his spirit. But that the new covenant people of God are actually firmly placed, firmly placed in a story of God's kingdom building and people building that extends far beyond them, both in the past and into the future. This is helpful for us, that we are not the first generation of people ever thinking through things that have ever been thought about. We are not the first generation of people thinking and struggling in obedience and in disobedience. But God is the same forever, and he is faithful forever. So, you might be now convinced that God is doing something similar with Ananias and Sapphira that he did with Achan or with Uzzah or with Nadab and Abihu. Maybe he is doing something very similar, but still you might think, I don't like any of that. I don't like what he did with Uzzah, and I don't like what he did with Ananias and Sapphira. Why is God like this? Like a stern word of warning to Ananias and Sapphira probably would have done the job, right? There's no grace, there's no mercy. Is God out of control? Is God vindictive? Well, I very rarely do this, but I, I want to share with you an extended quote. This is from N.T. Wright, whom I don't always agree with entirely, but while I had some similar thoughts about how I was going to approach and teach through this passage, then I read his short commentary on Acts this week, and I assure you, whatever I was going to say would not have been as good as this. N.T. Wright says this, We don't like these stories, of course, but we can't have it both ways. If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to bullying authorities, makes converts right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to take, who seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, You must not be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. If you invoke the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying, he may just decide to do some of that work already in advance. God is not mocked, as Paul puts it in Galatians 6. Though we sincerely hope he will not normally act with such sudden and swift judgment, leaving no room for the possibility of repentance and restoration, and, write notes, that we note that this sort of thing never seems to happen again in the early church. This seems to be a very uh, formative and intentional movement of God. And yet... We will either choose to live in the presence of the God who made the world, who longs passionately for it to be set right, or we lapse back into some variety or other of easygoing paganism with just the veneer of Christianity. That we were just living our life however we'd like it and then just 
put a little bit of Jesus icing on top. Holiness, in other words, is not an optional extra. How God chooses to make that point is in the last analysis up to him, since he is the only one who knows the human heart. But the earliest Christians were quite clear. To name the name of Jesus and to invoke the Holy Spirit is to claim to be the temple of the living God, and that is bound to have consequences. Who is God? Is he the eternal God without end, who has created all things, who is all-powerful, who is all-good, who is all-right, all-righteous, always trustworthy? Or is God some mere like dim reflection of our own selves that we are peering down and seeing into the water? Have we made him into a God of our own image? We're comfortable with him dealing with all of the real evil and injustice out there, but we are uncomfortable with him then moving to deal with real evil and injustice in here or in here. We cannot have it both ways. But I thought God was a God of love. He is. God is love. It is not just like two sides of the same coin of his wrath and his love. He's not like a a two-faced character in which he's flipping a coin and just deciding one day or the next to be good or to be loving on one day or to be wrathful and judging on the other. No, it is out of explosive and outward-moving love that our triune God created the universe in the first place. And it is out of love that he has created you. And it is also out of love that he is just. To right wrongs. To end injustice. It is out of love for his church that he authorizes the church to cast out the yeast that is leavening, that is spreading unrepentant sin that is corrupting the life and the witness of the church. It is out of love for you that he demands and desires your worship so that you will be most happy in him. But what is actually going on in Acts 5? And what does it mean for us? Ananias, we see in verse 1, with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, no one was forcing, no one was compelling anyone to do anything with any of their stuff in Acts 4. Peter even says so in Chapter 5, verse 4, he says to Ananias about the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Barnabas and others were willingly selling and bringing their stuff for the good of the community. But the church here is not abolishing private property. 
Ananias and Sapphira were of zero obligation to go sell their land and of zero obligation to then give the proceeds of that land to the church. Zero. They didn't even steal anything. The land and the money was theirs. But they did steal. Presumably, Barnabas and others were likely publicly thanked and honored as they made their contributions and Oh, sure, Ananias and Sapphira might think, yeah, all glory to God, as Barnabas goes and gives his money to the apostles. Sure, God be praised and all that stuff, but perhaps in their heart of hearts, that kind of acclaim, that kind of approval, would be nice to have for themselves. And so they stole it. They use their stuff, they use their money, not out of love for God, not out of love for their brothers and sisters, but out of love for themselves. Only giving some and then saying it was all so that they might be accepted, they might be approved, that they might be honored publicly. That others might think of them as especially generous or kind or selfless. So perhaps we do the same in the way that we give of our time in our service to others, in our generosity with our money and our stuff, in our generosity with our talents and in performance. I just confess to you, something I've confessed before, this will likely be a temptation for me as long as I am preaching. To preach more for your acceptance and your approval, to be thought of as a good preacher rather than for the glory of God and for your own good. It's a constant struggle of mine. We are tempted to steal in these kinds of ways all the time, to be living and acting and speaking for the approval of others, not for the good of others. And we must increasingly learn to reject this kind of worship of self. Because here's where Jen Wilkins' insight from earlier is so helpful, where she said that there is no such thing as non-communal obedience and there is no such thing as non-communal sin. When I am growing in selflessness, in genuine generosity, in hospitality, not for my sake, but for God's glory and for your good, when I'm growing in all those ways, you all benefit and vice versa. When you're growing in, in those ways, I and we benefit. This might seem obvious like publicly in these kind of big ways of generosity, of hospitality or something, but it's also true of our hidden obedience as well. When I am happier in Christ, when I am growing in his word, when I am more nearly walking by the Spirit, you all are the beneficiaries. And not just because I'm the pastor or something. When you all are doing the same, I benefit. Growing in our spiritual disciplines of, of Bible reading, of prayer, of church attendance, of GC hangouts, of growing in self-control, growing in intentional use of our time. All of these things, even just the boring spiritual disciplines, all of these things are important ways for you to love your neighbor. The way that you read your Bible is not just about what you get out of it, out of your time with Jesus, 
But the way that you read your Bible is the way to you, for you to love your neighbor in becoming the kind of person that Jesus can use. But in the same way, there's no such thing as private sin. There's no such thing as non-communal sin. Undoubtedly, Peter is right when he told Ananias, you have not lied to man, but to God. But vertical sins always have horizontal consequences. Always. Even if your sin like, isn't hurting anyone, it is drying you up, slowly forming calluses on your soul that make you less of a wellspring, less of an opportunity for living water to bless your family, to bless your neighborhood, to bless your GCs, your church, the world. But in the end, in this life and in the experience of my flesh, I will never live sinlessly so that there is never any horizontal fallout. And in the end, there is no amount of obedience that I can muster that will bring total blessing to all of you. In the end, the early church and our church did not and is not trusting in our righteousness to save us. And we are not, or we should not be, fearful that God will condemn us. Ananias and Sapphira were good actors. Peter says that Satan had filled their hearts, which is pretty remarkable. Remarkable because Jesus had essentially said the same thing to Peter just a couple of months before this. In those days, Peter, having not been filled with the Spirit, was opposed to the work of Christ and his coming death and resurrection. But now, having seen the risen Christ, having been united to him by faith, having been sealed by his Spirit for eternity, now Peter can walk confidently in the full obedience of Christ. And the full blessing that Jesus now horizontally gives his people as he vertically unites them to God. Ananias and Sapphira were imposters in the temple of God. Not having his spirit, not holding and being the place of his dwelling and their actions left unchecked would have had consequences for the people. They wanted the benefits, perhaps of belonging certainly of acceptance and praise, but they did not want God. And maybe there are some here tonight who need to hear that message. Maybe I've been acting all along. Maybe I want the benefits of God without actually wanting God. Maybe others of you are sitting here, not in like a sideline belonging, but a straight-up outside observer. If so... God has created you and knows you. He has created, created you for himself, whether you acknowledge that reality or not. And yet you, like all of us on our own have, you have rejected the reign and rule of God in your life. You have rejected his vocation for your life of stewarding and pointing to his glory. And yet he has not left you in condemnation. He has made a way through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, of reconciliation, of belonging, of forgiveness. If you would but respond in faith and give him your allegiance and turn from yourself, now following him in love. But I think, I think 
in other periods in my life in the past. You get other times in my life in the past. Texts like these, sermons like these, would have caused me to tremble in doubt, in lack of assurance, in anxiety. I might have read a text like the first half of chapter five or sat through a sermon like this and perhaps asked myself, am I an imposter? Perhaps that's a good question to ask. But I might have asked, how do I know that I'm not Ananias or Sapphira with an eternally similar fate as theirs? This is a question that you're asking of yourself tonight. Look to Christ. Behold his glory, and he will slowly transform you. Do not try to transform yourself and then one day look to Christ. Trust in his righteousness and not your own, and you will be transformed. I read this week a quote from Dane Ortland, and it couldn't any better sum up this first half of chapter 5. So let me leave you with this. As long as you fix your attention on your sin, you will fail to see how you can be safe. But as long as you look to your high priest, you will fail to see how you can be in danger. He brings us along in assurance of faith based on his work alone, his obedience alone, and all we must do is hold on to him by faith as we walk with him and walk in the community of his people. What a sweet and saving gospel this is. What a sweet and assuring gospel it is to us weak, fearful, acceptance-craving people that we behold him all the more. Let's pray that he might help us do that. Oh, Spirit, we pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us see him in your word, the hero of our great redemption. God, help us to love him, behold him, trust him, obey him even. Grow us in holiness and in purity. We pray that you would continually purify us, not just as individuals, but as a church, as your temple, as your dwelling place on this earth. Might we care for one another? Might we care for the world around us? Help us to be generous. Help us not to hold tightly to our possessions, but help us hold these things loosely that we might give them if others are in need. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Help us to know you and trust you and behold you. We pray that you might do all of these things for our own joy and for your glory made known in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.